Sections 57 and 58 of 100% The Story of a Patriot by Upton Sinclair. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Section 57 Peter went to the American house and met McGivney, and was put to work on a job that precisely suited his mood. The time had come for action, said the rat-faced man. The executive committee of the IWW local had been drafting an appeal to the main organization for help, and the executive committee was to meet that evening. Peter was to get in touch with the secretary, Grady, and find out where this meeting was to be, and make the suggestion that all the membership be gathered, and other Reds also. The businessmen of the city were going to pull off their big stroke that night, said McGivney. The younger members of the Chamber of Commerce and the Merchants and Manufacturers Association had got together and worked out a secret plan, and all they wanted was to have the Reds collected in one place. So Peter set out and found Sean Grady, the young Irish boy who kept the membership lists and other papers of the organization, in a place so secret that not even Peter had been able to find them. Peter brought the latest news about the sufferings of Mac in the hole, and how Gus, the sailor, had joined Henderson in the hospital. He was so eloquent in his indignation that presently Grady told him about the meeting for that evening, and about the place, and Peter said they really ought to get some of their friends together, and work out some way to get their protest literature distributed quickly, because it was evident that they could no longer use the mails. What was the use of resolutions of executive committees when what was wanted was action by the entire membership? Grady said all right, they would notify the active members and sympathizers, and he gave Peter the job of telephoning and traveling about town getting word to a dozen people. At six o'clock that evening Peter reported the results to McGivney, and then he got a shock. You must go to that meeting yourself, said the rat-faced man. You mustn't take any chance of their suspecting you. "'But, my God!' cried Peter. "'What's going to happen there?' "'You don't need to worry about that,' answered the other. "'I'll see that you're protected.' The gathering was to take place at the home of Ada Ruth, the poet, and McGivney had Peter describe this home to him. Beyond the living room was a hallway, and in this hallway was a big clothes-closet. At the first alarm, Peter must make for this place.' He must get into the closet, and McGivney would be on hand, and they would pen Peter up and pretend to club him, but in reality would protect him from whatever happened to the rest. Peter's knees began to tremble, and he denounced the idea indignantly. What would happen to him if anything were to happen to McGivney, or to his automobile, and were to fail to get there in time? McGivney declared that Peter need not worry. He was too valuable a man for them to take any chances with. McGivney would be there, and all Peter would have to do was to scream and raise a rumpus, and finally fall unconscious, and McGivney and Hammett and Cummings would carry him out to their automobile and take him away. Peter was so frightened that he couldn't eat any dinner, but wandered about the street talking to himself and screwing up his courage. He had to stop and look at the American flag still waving from the buildings, and read the evening edition of the American City Times, in order to work up his patriotic fervor again. As he set out for the home of the little cripple who wrote pacifist poetry, he really felt like the soldier boys marching away to war. Ada Ruth was there, and her mother, a dried-up old lady who knew nothing about all these dreadful world movements, but whose pleadings had no effect upon her inspired daughter. 
also Ada's cousin, a lean old maid schoolteacher, secretary of the People's Council, also Miriam Yankovich, and Sadie Todd, and Donald Gordon. On the way Peter had met Tom Duggan, and the mournful poet revealed that he had composed a new poem about Mac in the Hole. Immediately afterwards came Grady, the secretary, his pockets stuffed with papers. Grady, a tall, dark-eyed, impulsive-tempered Irish boy, was what the socialists called a Jimmy Higgins, that is, one of the fellows who did the hard and dreary work of the movement, who were always on hand no matter what happened, always ready to have some new responsibility put upon their shoulders. Grady had no use for the socialists, being only interested in industrial action, but he was willing to be called a Jimmy Higgins. He had said that Peter was one too, and Peter had smiled to himself, thinking that a Jimmy Higgins was about the last thing in the world he ever would be. Peter was on the way to independence and prosperity, and it did not occur to him to reflect that he might be a Jimmy Higgins to the whites instead of to the reds. Grady now pulled out his papers and began to talk over with Donald Gordon the proceedings of the evening. He had had a telegram from the national headquarters of the IWW, promising support, and his thin, hungry face lighted up with pride as he showed this. Then he announced that Bud Connor was to be present, a well-known organizer, who had been up in the oil country with McCormick, and brought news that the workers there were on the verge of a big strike. Then came Mrs. Jennings, a poor, tormented little woman, who was slowly dying of cancer and whose husband was suing her for divorce because she had given money to the IWW. With her and helping her along came Andy Adams, a big machinist, who had been kicked out of his lodge for talking too much direct action. He pulled from his pocket a copy of the evening telegraph, and read a few lines from an editorial denouncing direct action as meaning dynamiting, which it didn't, of course and asking how long it would be before the friends of law and order in American City would use a little direct action of their own. Section 58 So they gathered until about thirty were present, and then the meeting speedily got down to business. It was evident, said Grady, that the authorities had deliberately framed up the dynamite conspiracy in order to have an excuse for wiping out the IWW organization. They had closed the hall and confiscated everything, typewriters and office furniture and books, including a book on sabotage, which they had turned over to the editor of the Evening Times. There was a hiss of anger at this. Also, they had taken to interfering with the mail of the organization. The IWW had to get out their literature by express. They were fighting for their existence, and they must find some way of getting the truth to people. If anybody had any suggestions to make, now was the time. There came one suggestion after another, and meantime Peter sat as if his chair were full of pins. Why didn't they come, the younger members of the Chamber of Commerce and the Merchants and Manufacturers Association, and do what they were going to do without any further delay? Did they expect Peter to sit there all night, trembling with alarm, and he not having any dinner besides? Suddenly Peter gave a jump. Outside came a yell, and Donald Gordon, who was making a speech, stopped suddenly, and the members of the company stared at one another, and some sprang to their feet. There were more yells, rising to screams, and some of the company made for the front doors and some for the back doors, and yet others for the windows and the staircase. Peter wasted no time, but dived into the clothes closet in the hallway back of the living room, 
and got into the farthest corner of this closet, and pulled some of the clothes on top of him, and then, to make him safer yet, came several other people piling on top of him. From his place of refuge he listened to the confusion that reigned. The place was a bedlam of women's shrieks, and the curses of fighting men, and the crash of overturning furniture, and of clubs and monkey-wrenches on human heads. The younger members of the Chamber of Commerce, and the Merchants and Manufacturers Association, had come in sufficient force to make sure of their purpose. There were enough to crowd the room full, and to pack all the doorways, and two or three to guard each window, and a flying squadron to keep watch for anybody who jumped from the roof or tried to hide in the trees of the garden. Peter cowered and listened to the furious uproar, and presently he heard the cries of those on top of him, and realized that they were being pulled off and clubbed. He felt hands reach down and grab him, and he cringed and cried in terror, but nothing happened to him and presently he glanced up, and he saw a man wearing a black mask, but easily to be recognized as McGivney. Never in all his life had Peter been gladder to see a human face than he was to see that masked face of a rat. McGivney had a club in his hand, and was dealing ferocious blows to the clothes heaped around Peter. Behind McGivney were Hammett and Cummings, covering the proceedings, and now and then carefully putting in a blow of their own. Most of the fighting inside the house and outside came quickly to an end because everybody who fought was laid out or overpowered. Then several of Guffey's agents, who had been studying these Reds for a year or two and knew them all, went about picking out the ones who were especially wanted and searching them for arms and then handcuffing them. One of these men approached Peter, who instantly fell unconscious, and closed his eyes. Then Hammett caught him under the armpits, and Cummings by the feet, and McGivney walked alongside as a bodyguard, remarking now and then, We want this fellow, we'll take care of him. They carried Peter outside, and in the darkness he opened his eyes just enough to see that the street was lined with automobiles, and that the Reds were being loaded aboard. Peter's friends carried him to one car and drove him away and then Peter returned to consciousness, and the four of them sat up and laughed to split their sides, and slapped one another on the back, and mentioned the satisfactory things they had seen. Had Hammett noticed that slice Grady had got over the eyes, and the way the blood had run all over him? Well, he wanted to be a red. They had helped him be one, inside and out. Had McGivney noticed how Buck Ellis, one of their men, had put the nose of the hobo poet out of joint? and young Ogden, son of the President of the Chamber of Commerce, had certainly managed to show how he felt about these cattle, the female ones as well as the males. When that Yankovich slut had slapped his face, he caught her by the breasts and nearly twisted them off, and she had screamed and fainted. Yes, they had cleaned them out, but that wasn't all of it. They were going to finish the job tonight, by God. They were going to give these pacifists a taste of the war, they were going to put an end to the Red Terror in American City. Peter might go along if he liked and see the good work. They were going into the country, and it would be dark, and if he kept a mask on, he would be quite safe. And Peter said yes, his blood was up, and he was full of the spirit of the hunt. He wanted to be in at the death, regardless of everything. End of sections 57 and 58